When I started the Unexpected Cosmology a few years ago, I was referencing the flat, motionless plane that we find ourselves on, and of course the firmament. Specifically, are discovering how literal the Bible truly was, and this was back in 2015. But I didn't have the slightest clue how unexpected this realm truly was. Despite how dark the world is around us, this is truly an exciting time to be alive. Now, last week, we went over the glorious appearing of Yahusha Hamashiach. It seems like a lot longer than a week to me. Um, I can't believe it's only been a week. But here we are again. And I told you guys that when I presented that to you, it kind of, it came down to the wire. And I knew I had so many days to develop it. And I had all these notes in front of me. And I was like, well, I'll develop the most important points. And then if I finish those and have more time, I'll get to others. And if I finish those and have more time, I'll get to others. Well, I didn't get to all of them. And actually, there's a lot more in 70 AD that I would like to cover that I still haven't got to. But this week, we will be delving back into the year 66 to 70 AD. And I dropped it in for you guys. Now, if you guys came to our Sabbath group uh, last Sabbath, of course, it was amazing because Rob, Michael, and I were talking about Revelation 6. And of all the weeks that I talk about 66 to 70 AD and Revelation 6, because I gave a presentation then on my interpretation of the six seals, which includes the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as they're known, also the Beatles of Liverpool. And I expressed how I believe that you could take Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 and lay them over each other, and it's the same event. Now, keep in mind, Yahushua said, as I have um, outlined in the glorious appearing of Yahushua HaMashiach, that everything he spoke about on the Mount of Olives would happen in that generation or in this generation. And he said, you know, many people there would not taste death. And he kept using the language, you, 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 ye, ye, right? He's talking to those people. So we're going to open this up tonight to page 23. So Josh and see recording if you want to turn to page 23. And this chronologically follows my talking about this generation. So let's just get right into it. And I gave a similar, like I said, I gave a similar presentation last Sabbath, but a lot of people are not going to tune in to that. So I wanted to flesh this out a little bit better than what I gave on Sabbath. It kind of slipped up a little bit and laid out so everybody can see what I'm looking at. So this is called, this section is called The Four Horsemen of Matthew 24. Difficult indeed for four horsemen to gallop by and go unnoticed. You figure an equestrian with scales would make a lot of racket. And don't even get me started on what sort of uh, c <laughs> cacophony, I had to look that up on a, on a thesaurus, we might expect from four clopping hooves and sheol following in their wake. Speaking of parade routes, they played a starring role in Matthew 24 and very few picked up on their presence. Believe me, they're there. The discovery was made a couple of years ago, but on accident. All I did was read Revelation 6 and then revisit Matthew 24 again based upon a hunch. The two chapters fit like a glove. I shouldn't even have to be the one to let everyone in on the news. 
There should be entire books written on the obvious comparisons between Revelation 6 and Matthew 24 by now. I can only suspect it's because our controllers would rather compartmentalize the places between our school rather than have us understand what really went down. Making the connection that the four horsemen of the apocalypse arrived within the confines of this generation is dangerous business, I suppose. Whereas Matthew 24 is told to us from the Mount of Olives, we are made aware of the horsemen during a vision from heaven. Perhaps that is part of the disconnect. Let's not, for, let's not forget, though, that Yahusha is not only the narrator of the uh, Olivet Discourse, but also the author of the letters mailed out to the seven churches. He is simply rehearsing the same story to the fig tree generation. So we read in Hebrew Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, And he who sat on the throne, I saw a scroll in his right hand, and it was sealed with seals on the outside and on the inside with seven seals. The seven seals from which the four horsemen emerge are introduced to us in the fifth chapter of Revelation. The scene is a courtroom in heaven complete with thrones, a legal council, and paperwork, business as usual. I'm not saying there's nothing important about this course of events. Quite, quite contrarily, the seals being offered can only be opened by Yahusha, the Lamb, and are therefore major turning points of his story. What I'm trying to make clear here, though, is that I see no reason as to why the thrones aren't regularly set up. Seals are opened and sephirs are read in heaven all the time, today just as they were then. Yochanan is simply peering into the court proceedings of his generation. Rather than quoting from Revelation, pausing for comment, and then ricocheting over to Matthew for further comment, I thought it would be a good idea to line up both texts together so that you might see what I saw, that both Matthew and Revelation do indeed parallel each other. So we read. I'll read from, um, I'll read from Hebrew Revelation first, and then Matthew, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Then I saw that the Lamb opened one of the seals. So the first seal. And I heard the four living creatures say, like one voice, come and see. Then I saw a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow in his hand, and a crown was given to him, and he went to overcome, and he overcame. Now jumping over to Matthew 24, verses 3 through 4. And he sat upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Yeshua answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. The first seal is religious deception. The rider of the, right, the, rider of the white horse was a false Christ going out and about to divide the sheep and conquer. Some would say the Antichrist, but Yochanan had earlier warned us in 1st Yochanan that there are many Antichrists. We are dealing in the spiritual realm, and so we might as well call this writer the spirit of Antichrist. That just so happens to be the first warning which Yahusha gave gives to the Twelve, by the way. There would be many coming in his name, saying they are the Christ, and would deceive many. So, you could say spiritual deception was the first hurdle which the twelve had to overcome after Yahushua HaMashiach ascended to heaven. 
there was a white rider going about with arrows in his quiver. Not quite unlike how we picture Cupid with his attempts at matchmaking. Yehuda, the brother of Yehusha, referred to a Balaam in the camp. Earlier in Revelation, Yehusha did too. Probably the same person as the first rider. Seeing through the thinly disguised deception would not be easy for anyone then, just as it is for us today. Fingering the culprit, however, makes people uncomfortable because the 40 years between Yahusha and 70 AD pits us in Shaul territory. His hastily written letters to the uh, Galatim illustrates a falling out with Kepha and Yaakov's Jerusalem group, which was never again resolved. And the number of people seduced to sin by the confusion found in his teachings is beyond consolation. Moving on. And I actually had. <laughs> when I was writing this, I actually went off on a whole shower rant, and I had to, uh, uh, I wrote in the flesh and had to erase in the spirit. So, um, going easy on him there. All right, Hebrew Revelation 6.4. Then another red horse went out, and he who sat on it was given to take away the shalom from the earth, and a great sword was given to him. Hebrew Revelation 6.4. Jumping back over to Matthew 24, 6, 3. And you'll notice that with these verses in Matthew, I'm going in the same order as I am in Revelation. Like, I'm not skipping over verses. They all flow with each other. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines, and pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. War is the second seal. And already you should be noticing a trend. The seals which were opened in Yochanan's generation are not quite unlike the seals opened in any other time. False shalom leads to war. Time and again. It's the old Masonic axiom, order out of chaos. The rider on the white horse is a snake oil salesman gaining support in a steam in the pulpit from his brotherhood in secret societies. How many religious individuals have led us to war? Hebrew Revelation 6, 5-6. through six. And when he opened the third seal, the third living creature said, Come and see. Then I saw a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pale pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a measure of wheat for two coins, and three measures of barley for two coins, and to the oil and the wine do not damage. Jumping over to Matthew 24, 7 through 8. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines, and pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Famine is the third seal. We're once again quoting from Matthew 24, 7, just as we did for the second seal. But in both instances, you can clearly see that there is a progression at play. False doctrine leads to war, which in turn slides into famine, making way for the fourth rider. So Hebrew Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living creature say, Come and see. Then I saw a speckled and strong horse, and he who sat on it, his name was the Messenger of Death. And Ha-Gehinnom followed after him. And authority was given to him to put to death a fourth part of the earth, with the sword and with famine and with death and by animals of the earth. Jumping over to Matthew 24, 7 through 8. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. 
and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. The fourth seal is pestilence or epidemic disease. Before you start screaming COVID-19 as if that's a thing, there's a detail which I want you to notice here. Most Bible translations say hell followed in the writer's wake. The sephir chooses Sheol, but that's not what the Hebrew claims. It is Gehenna which follows the messenger of death. Gehenna, mind you, that's a place of judgment for the unrighteous, telling us that the pestilence is one which only affects those who don't know how to be set apart. Even if it were Sheol, though, the righteous have already been delivered from it, telling us once again who is ultimately being affected. That's the problem with the church today. They'll chase after every vaccine which the beast god vermin mandates, thinking there's no such thing as clean or unclean anymore. Folly to their destruction. By now you should see the dominoes at play. None of this would have happened had the first writer not done away with Torah. Hebrew Revelation 6, 9-11 through 11. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the temple the persons which were killed because of the set-apartness of Yahuwah and because of the testimony which they had. And they cried out with a great voice and said, Set apart and faithful Adon, until when will you judge without avenging our blood from those who dwell on the earth? And to every one of them were given white garments, and it was said to them that they should rest yet a little time. Jumping back to Matthew 24, this time verses 9 through 12. Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another, and many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Persecution and murder inhabit the fifth seal. Though all four writers have already gone forth, the character of the first writer has been exposed. The shalom he promised from afar was spurious. False prophets have won the day, but not all is a loss. Yahushua promised that this gospel, or rather his gospel, would be preached in all the world to the lost sheep of Yashrael. This, despite a false gospel having potentially reached them first, via the first writer. Only then, when the gospel of the kingdom was preached, would the end come. All right, now we're coming up on Hebrew Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. And I saw that he opened the sixth seal. And there was an earthquake, and the sun was black, and the moon was red like blood. And all their hosts fell down like a leaf falls from a vine, and like the withering of a fig tree. And all the mountains and hills were shaken away from their place. And the kings of the earth, and the rulers, and the rich ones, and the officers, and the slaves, and the free ones, hid in narrow caves and holes in the ground. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us, because of the appearance of him who sits on the throne, and because of the fury of the Lamb. For the day of his burning anger has come, and who is able to stand before him? Jumping over to Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. It's almost like a copy and paste. Amazing. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. So here you, you see the Son of Man versus the appearance of the Lamb. But 
They're both being shown to the people. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. So, versus climbing into the caves, right? And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Matthew 24, 29-31. The sixth seal deals in heavenly signs. Remember now, all these things would happen in this generation. We've already gone over that fact. You will tell me the stars never fell to the earth in the first century, but I can't say the same thing as I wasn't there. I see no reason why the stars either lost their authority and fell, or, as potential reflectors of the set-apart, altogether vanished when they were removed from the earth. I wouldn't be in the least surprised if the number of stars in the firmament changes all the time. It's worth considering. In any ways, the sixth seal is the big one. The sun darkened and the moon turned blood red is mentioned in both accounts. But those are just side notes to the appearance of the son of Adam in heaven. We haven't gotten to that scene quite yet in this overall paper. When the angels of heaven gather his elect from the four corners of the earth. But when we do, and it most certainly is documented, we are only given various descriptions of the heavenly army and not people's responses to them. The historians seem more interested in conveying what witnesses saw rather than the excitable yet noticeably shaky voices which delivered their message. I say this now because once we get there, to 66 AD that is, you will have to recall these passages and know people were rolling around in the fetal position and soiling their pants. So that's all I have for you guys on this part tonight. And I hope that was a good... For those of you who listened in last week or caught it on in YouTube land, and anyone who is watching this video on YouTube land, hopefully that's a nice little addition to what I already covered. I'm going to be opening this up to a roundtable if anyone has any comments or anything to add on what has been discussed before moving on to our second part tonight. Don't all rush up at once. I'll give you guys a moment. And I just wanted to add, I like the uh, tie-in with Matthew 24 you did. I'm glad you were able to go over it in a little bit more detail and doing the side-by-side -side from last week. So I do appreciate that. And I do like that how when we see these, these comparisons in scriptures and able to tie them in and give them some kind of uh, further meaning, it, I think it gives, I don't know, to me it gives clarity on certain topics uh, that we're looking at especially when you look at it through this type of lens and, and what it means to us today. So I, I liked it. I thought it, it was brilliant. And I'm, I hope that my, uh, apparently I was unmuted by mistakes. <laughs> so I hope you didn't hear my uh, cheers in the background, but it, it was brilliant. I, I've never um, heard such an analysis. So I like you, it, and, and I like also the Balaam thing. Um, so many, many years ago, when when I read the New Testament for the fir the first time, when I read the story that saw that Paul um, told the story of his, you know, uh, revelation, the f the first image that came to my mind was uh, the story with Balaam on the donkey. Um, and then uh, many years later, when I read Revelation and Yeshua was talking about Balaam, I always thought 
that he was referring to Paul. So hearing you, Noel, it just kind of like confirmed all of the thoughts that I had in the past. Well, first of all, if you want to cheer me on while I read, you can always do that with your mics on. I give everyone permission to <laughs> turn on their mics to applaud or to cheer. Um, it's, it's very clear that there's some comparisons between Moshe and and Yasharel in the wilderness and 40 years there and the 40 years between Yahusha and what happened in 66 to 70 AD. And, you know, you, you have Moshe coming along to this generation, which is, you know, a, an evil generation and in complete rebellion. And he gives, he presents to them the marriage covenant, which is the law. And I need to do a whole presentation sometime on all the, the, overwhelming evidence that the law was not invented at Mount Sinai. It was well known to Israel before they reached Mount Sinai. It's the same thing as if we were, if anyone here goes and gets married, you know what the, you know what the wedding vows are going to be. And you know that you're going to commit to, you know, uh, uh, taking care of your spouse and not committing adultery and these kind of things. It's the same thing. They all, they knew what the law was. And anyways, we know that Balaam comes along, and it's a really interesting story because Balaam is on his way to curse Israel, but he has an encounter with the the angel on the road, his donkey speaks. In the end, he is not able to curse Israel. He has to bless them to the point that this other king's getting really offended. He's like, whose side are you on here? He's actually blessing them. And all he can do is entice them to sin. He can throw some uh, temptations out there, you know, the, the food sacrifice idols and uh, sexual immorality, which many of them fall into. And the writers of the, the New Testament are, one of which is Yahusha, writing these letters to Yochanan to the seven churches, is telling us that there is this Balaam going around doing the same thing all over again. And it's fascinating because it, it's this generation that's trying to cross over into the promised land, to paradise, right? To their spiritual inheritance in paradise, and not all of them are going to make it. And this Balaam character, whoever he is, I, I think he was a real person, is coming along and, and causing a lot of people to fall into spiritual deception and sin. Hopefully everyone knows, you probably hear it in my voice and how I talk. I get really uncomfortable talking about, about Shaul, particularly because I, it's one of those issues where I really don't want to offend people's convictions on this. If they believe that this guy is legitimately pro-Torah and would never, you know, never lead us astray and it's people confusing him. And then, but then I still talk to people and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, he's pro-Torah, but you know, it, he did away with circumcision. I'm like, ah, see, like, come on guys. Like <laughs> he, he couldn't have done away with circumcision. I'm sorry. Like, no, it makes me uncomfortable, but it, it the, the parallels are uncanny, like with the road to Damascus and, you know, he fell on his butt. And, you know, there was a big light, and he was on his way to curse Israel. Afterwards, he could only bless Israel. But the question was, was he capable of leading people to sin? Now, however people feel on Paul, the, the elephant in the room, the fact of the matter is, is that 99% of Christianity, Catholicism, Greek Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy, pick your, 
your your sect, your branch, and then all the denominations under them. And Paul is their guy, and he's the guy that leads them to sin, to be unclean. And we can all say that he's, you know, they're just, they're purposely twisting his words. I don't believe that to be true. I don't believe that they are purposefully twisting his words. I believe that they are convinced of his message. Um, that's just me again. I want to respect everyone's views. But um, I actually did. I had this whole monologue that I wrote out, like a couple paragraphs, and I, I got it. I trashed them because I always do that because I just didn't feel comfortable talking about them. But. Well, um, no, Go ahead. I, yeah, just about that Paul thing. Um, it's really come up uh, recently for me in just in a few conversations in another group I was in. And it's, yeah, it, I, it's just mind-blowing, really. Um, that, well, what's, uh, what's mind-blowing about it? I guess that just how almost all of um, modern Christianity is kind of wrapped up and tied in it. And the, yeah, the defensiveness of it really just, um, it shows a lot that, yeah, how far they've fallen. I don't know. It's, I'm kind of newer to it, but it's really, really interesting to look into. Um, well, the d defensiveness, the, the defensiveness that we see in Christianity is, is part of, I don't want to use, I don't necessarily use the word programming, but it's what you're, you're taught and raised in that anything that is more or less being taught against what their teaching is is blasphemy and and you don't want to go down that route so that's why it becomes difficult for mainstream christianity to have a uh if you want to use the word discernment but if you want to be open-minded it's it's very difficult because in one sense you want to they're they're being they're being taught to guard themselves which is great but uh it's at an expense of everything else is just plain wrong and you can't question even your even what you're being taught. So that that's 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 the challenge. And and I do understand that thought because even when you come to a newer understanding, uh, you know how far will you def how far will the the seeking of truth lead you down the wrong path? And so you always have to keep on guard as you question everything that you're learning, even down down any path, because if you open all the doors, then you might end up in left field just because, you know, you're, you're opening everything and, and just taking it all in without that discernment, without looking for the second witness, looking for uh, these things with that have validity to them and narrowing them down. So it's 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 a tough it's a tough part because um, I came out of that and it, and, it, and it was a difficult part to get through and over. Yes, and one, a good example, I think, of what Rob is talking about would be the Trinity. Within Christianity, there's a, an umbrella of certain beliefs that you have to stand under in order to be within the church. And if you step out of those bounds, or you step beyond some beliefs, you're now stepping out of bounds. And one of those is the Trinity. And so the way it was described to me growing up, because I had tons of questions about the trinity and i remember going to like junior high camps and that's the things like all like you know middle schoolers and stuff they all would wrestle with and like what is like it doesn't make sense to anybody guys but 
it would all be the same, you know, explanation of, you know, was it ice and, and water and steam and, you know, and we just have to put our faith in this. And, and so the way it was really explained to me was that this, this so-called logic that will lead you away from the Trinity, it's all a test of your faith and that you are to not deviate from this. And it's all just leading to a deception. Right. Any other belief that leads you away from it, it's a deception. And, you know, all these extra biblical books, it's a deception that's leading you away. You know, just stick to canon, this kind of stuff. And that was incredibly difficult to get through. It was it took me years of breaking down information and and starting to trust these other texts that they were indeed not going to lead me away, that I wasn't going to be damned and go to hell for an eternity if I denied the Trinity. If I recognize that the Father, the Most High, has an only begotten Son, a literal only begotten Son, um, I used to ask that, and also, you know, the Ruach HaKadosh, I used to ask that question, what does that mean that he has an only begotten Son? And it, doesn't that mean he has a Son? I'd be like, no, no, he doesn't have a Son. It's just, it's an honorary title. That's all it is. It's an, And I'm like, so he, so the Father is not really the Father of the Son? And they're like, no, it's just, it's a Middle Eastern thing. It's just how they, you know, they talk about authority and that kind of stuff. And my wife's best friend, found out that we don't believe in Trinity and she's, you know, stuck in, you know, back in California in the Christian church paradigm evangelicalism. And she was like freaking out. So she sent us a book on trying to coax us back into the Trinity. And Sarah uh, agreed to read the book. And uh, I have it actually right here next to me. And it, it's just, it's a, it, the guy gives no defense for it whatsoever. The whole book is just basically God is super intelligent and it only makes sense that he would be Trinitarian because he's so freaking intelligent and nobody else can get it, but that's okay. You're not supposed to. You just have to accept it because it only makes sense to a super intelligent being, not to us. And that's the whole book. And I'm just like, this doesn't make sense. But Christianity is stuck in a rut where they can't escape that. They can't climb out of that because they're too afraid to, because if they do, they're going to hell. Yeah, I, I read, a, recently was given a book on uh, the Holy Spirit, and so I said, okay, I'll read that. And similar thing, as, uh, as I was reading it, they, they, of course, would use some scripture and then 10 pages of dialogue about explaining it all without any other scriptures, just, you know, their, their, their views and how they tied all these things in, and then they'd bring up some scripture here and there. And I, I prefer the opposite. I prefer most scriptures, and then you just connecting the dots, and then, okay, I see it all there. It makes sense. But no, it's... It it, reminds... you, you have to create this whole narrative to explain it. Yeah, I was just speaking with someone, you know, where does the, where does the Catholic Church get its tradition or counsel or scripture that bishops or the pope should be celibate after thousands of years of um the ironic priesthood being you know following yah's commandment of like be fruitful and multiply and of course it comes to well it's an oral tradition from uh, you know saint paul's writings then it's like well yeah it just goes back and then you have the trinity linked in it seems like they had all these councils of trent and nicaea just to to like solidify the Trinity and canonize Paul. And there's just, it's you. I worry that some of these people, yeah, there's, there's no way they're going to get out of it. I don't know. So David brought up 
another great point. He said, hell is a can of worms in itself, and it most certainly is. That's another part of the umbrella of most of Christianity, of this idea of this, this what I would call Greek mythology of this realm, not Greek, well, in terms of hell, actually German mythology, but of a realm that is eternal torment. You know, you go there and you're just in torment and agony for eternity beyond time you know and i remember when i th back in it was probably 2018 i threw hell out and i'm like this is i can't i can't accept this anymore and i started using just terms of okay i'm gonna just i'm gonna call it sheol uh the lake of fire or gehenna because yahusha never says hell he says gehenna so I'm like, well, why can't we say Gehenna? Because Gehenna is a valley on the other side of the temple. And it's also, uh, you could argue, the same as the Lake of Fire in the third heaven. But the Valley of Gehenna, and that's it's where the, the, the people cast out of the kingdom were thrown, you know, or out of the temple were thrown into it, or the trash or whatever, right? The garbage heap. And when I did that, man, that started strengthening my my understanding of scripture so much better. But People started freaking out. And I had, you know, a, a famous pastor in Alabama who is now running as the governor of Alabama. He started speaking sermons on me about how I'm going to hell because I don't believe in hell. He would never tell people what I am advocating, Sheol and, uh, you know, Gehenna, the lake of fire, and so on and so forth, that they are real places that people are tossed. But it just, it, it going, stepping outside of those bounds, yeah, it just, it, it, it goes against people's programming. They flip out. They can't take it. And it's hard. I get it. You know, so here I am talking about the Millennial Kingdom. And some people are advising me I should just keep the canon. I get it. I understand why. Because here I'm quoting from all these extra biblical books. And so you've got a lot of people that are interested in this idea of the Millennial Kingdom now. They're coming from all different sectors. They're coming from Catholicism, Greek Orthodoxy, good old Baptist boys. They're all coming over listening, and they're like, why is this guy quoting from, uh, what is this second Ezra, and Enoch, and, and Nicodemus? Like, what, what in the world is going on? And they can't accept it, and they just, they'll start mocking me. Because, and, you know, I could, I could try to speak at their level, but at a certain point, I kind of have to just accept that it's going to take them a while to get to, to get there, and I'm going to be patient and kind of give them permission to be able to read some of these books. You know, it's that it's okay, guys, to read Adam and Eve. Like, it's not going to it's not going to send you to hell to read Adam and Eve or to read Enoch. You know, it, it's really like it'll be okay. <laughs> I don't know how else to put that. It's, it it will be okay. Uh, it's not a it's not a trap to you know make you an atheist or a, a new ager or anything like that. So well, that 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 okay. point goes back to like Jehovah Witnesses and other religions. They they more or less tell the people not to you know research and read into the other person's faith too much. Just know what you need to know to get them to see what you what you understand, because obviously their main protection is not to lose any of their sheep. So in turn, they're going to tell you not to read anything and study anything in that sense uh, to be, quote, led astray. Reminds me of CNN uh, lately saying that we shouldn't research because it's idiotic to research, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'd just like to um, the 
the Hebrew revelation that we've been reading from. And if we leave, re read Revelation um, 21 or El HaSadat 21 and verse 13, um, then the death and Haggai Hinnom were cast into fire, and this is the last death. And if one was not found written in the scroll of the life, he was cast into the fire. So this was interesting that, again, it's not the same like we normally um, read in the um, translations. Still fire. Um, which you were just saying, I think it's the same. And um, death. So they're done within the fire. It's not specifically, but again, fire. Um, I, Rene, I don't know what the word is in Hebrew, maybe, but what type of fire are we talking about? Or it's just fire in general. But it's, the, it's um, that's it. That's the last death. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I should probably, because there's a lot of new people coming into this, and it's a, it's a great subject I should dust off and make a presentation on, and showing all the overwhelming, overwhelming evidence in Scripture that the soul is not naturally immortal. We don't, we don't, you know, it's not entitlement that, like, I'm just a god, I'm going to live forever. The, the, the thing that's horrible about the second death is that death is death, and it's final. Like when when someone is tossed into that fire, the lake of fire, they are. E it's not eternal torment. There is torment. I mean, it it sucks to be burned with fire. Like that would be a horrible thing. Just give you. Well, I'll give you a quick example of that. Last summer, it was uh, August. I was barbecuing, and a hot coal fell out onto the ground, and I didn't see it. I was barefoot, and I stepped right on it for like two seconds maybe three and you know i when i realized it it was hot i pulled my foot off it was right there in the arch of my foot and the, the meaty arch of my foot but that did so much damage to my foot and it was so painful that i was not able to walk for at least two weeks i was in excruciating pain and this is just one little meaty part of my bottom of my foot i can't imagine what it's like for you know they say you know being burned alive is like the worst pain you could feel but the the thing is though is that it's it it's final like you are erased you're done your soul you, you can never be returned again it's your consciousness everything it's gone <laughs>